0: Hey, everybody. This is your host, Raja, and we are on the ninth episode of the Populist Report. And let's get right into this one. Our topic today is going to be, I guess, in a broad sense. what What does it all mean when it comes to American politics? What are people saying? What do all the political ideations, like, what's the landscape looking like? Um where are the people where are the pol- or where are the elected officials? Um, where's the media? And just kind of a little breakdown because what I've noticed, uh, just in like talking to you know family and friends who are less politically involved, you know the the normies, as it could be said, um, is that because they're not sort of mired into this, world because they're not in the trenches with it of, uh, you know, the political bubble, a lot of like the fundamental or foundational sort of things, like what a certain label might mean, like what is conservative, what is, um, progressive, what is the right, what is the left, you know, what's the difference between the party's agenda and maybe like the voters and how they're, you know, what they're supporting uh, policy wise. Um that kind of gets lost. And so when you hear media coverage about this, they use these words and they kind of uh not. I mean it's obviously intentional, but they speak in a way in which they say one thing and they really mean another. So it's it's a lot of double speak talking, or you know, a lot of double speak going on. And so uh I think that's what I wanted to get into in this video or uh, this podcast, and kind of really just break down and sort of explain, like, this is what they all mean. This is kind of a a way to filter and sort of uh, translate for yourself, you know, maybe what a media narrative might be or or what politicians are doing or saying or some of the actions to help you anticipate, you know, how a certain politician might move, what the certain things in D.C. are kind of going like, you know, just to help give everyone a, a more of a foundation. Um, because honestly, like, that's kind of the whole get down when it comes to America and this power access of the media and the public and private sector, you know. They want to keep you off balance and they want to feed you these narrative with narratives with words that don't necessarily mean what they mean. Uh, to everybody. They don't really have a a solid definition that we all go, that's that thing. Um, I was watching some video, and, oh, dang, I can't remember the person's name. Anyways, they had a a good quote, though, and um, they were talking about cancel culture, and they were like, it has no real universal definition, and when you try to really get into it, that's how you know like that's when it starts breaking down that's when the term starts to kind of erode and mean nothing and uh, in politics we see that a lot with a lot of the commonly used terms when you kind of try to pin the tail on it it all just kind of fades away cuz everyone has their own interpretation of it and everybody uses the word for a different reason so intention and connotation also play a big part um so yeah i guess the first sort of thing that I think we should get into, um, is kind of the political landscape. Okay. And the question I want you guys to hold on to is what is American politics really, you know, kind of keep that one in the back of your mind, percolate it and let it sit with you. Um, and as we kind of go through this, you know, whatever your initial thought is when you hear American politics, let that sit with you and also hear this. And then at the end, I'll ask the question again and kind of give you my spiel on like what American politics really kind of is what, what's the beast so to speak. But the first real question we're going to get into is the political landscape. What is it? What what's it look like? How is it all cut up and divided? Um, and so basically What a lot of people go with is you have the right and left wing. Uh, Right wings are the conservatives. Um, On a gradient, it goes from like the super far, you know, totally anti-government militia people. And then, you know, that's like the extreme far right wing. So you're queuing on stuff in your Trumpers, too. They all kind of sit there in the super far right. Um, And then like nationalists and stuff like that, uh, which a lot of people say is code for white nationalists and stuff. I mean, it can be, they can be, there are times when it's used interchangeably, but it is two different um, ideals inherently. Now, how we see it in the common, you know, world in our everyday life, it's practically the same thing. colloquially colloquially used, it will be the same thing. Um, Look at that. That was a little bit of mush mouth right there that I had. But getting into the next thing, your left wing. Your left wing on the super far left, uh, ideologically speaking, would be like an open border, like kind of anarchist state um, supporter you know who, in in our time now, would be up on like every current, you know, social issue, and be on the more progressive side of that. That's kind of a broad thing because, like, with all of this too, with with uh, politics in America, politics in general, I guess. There's a a cutoff that I like to make between like the non-political sort of like the personal identity sort of aspects of it that go into play all these things that like aren't really policy related or economic like not related to like economic or or, uh, fiscal policy you could say too Um, things aren't related to that but they're still in the identity and their persona and the sort of like mental picture and image of that you know political ideation, sort of like, like a, a, the pink haired, you know, liberal arts, SJW, you know, that's not necessarily anything like the pink hair and the SJW ness and the, the self right or the moral self righteousness. None of that is necessarily like the political ideal. No, that is, you know, connected to the actual political um, ideation or would even reflect it. But that's still associated heavily with, you know, that sort of uh, a, a certain type of politics, same way on the right, you know, a very rugged do it yourself, you know, well, uh, what, what manosphere type person. Um, you know, the entrepreneur who's super into finances and day trading and Bitcoin, stuff like that, that now um, is kind of like your conception of like a young right winger, uh, a Ben Shapiro enthusiast, you know, even though none of those things necessarily have anything to do with the actual policies of the ideal or even the politicians or like the policies present, like none of it has to do with the actual politics. Those are all just personality and identity sort of things that we have now associated with a certain type of policy or a certain type of, of a group that says they claim a certain type of policy. And so also like, that's a part of it too. And you always have to make that sort of split so you can truly evaluate like, where are you? Uh, on the spectrum of political, um, ideals where, which ones do you like, which ones do you not, you know, which ones go with your values, which ones don't. And so continuing the breakdown. So I said the extremes of both sides for the most part, give a kind of, you know, broad picture of them, a a vague picture, kind of too, you could even say, because the real meat and potatoes is what. I guess, uh, uh, not a moderate conservative because even a term like that now has been skewed and twisted around, but like what a traditional conservative, I guess you could say is, um, and I'll tell you what the ideal is. And then I might, yeah, I'm gonna just go over the ideal and then I'm gonna address what that looks like for a politician, what that looks like for a voter. Cause it's two different things, um, a traditional conservative uh, follows what the word in and of itself says, conservative. You want to stick to tradition. You want to stick to things of the past that have been working. And there's no reason to, you know, in your mind, there is no reason to change that. You know, marriage looks a certain type of way. Why change that? Uh, the, the nuclear family sort of model is a strong model. Why change that, you know, household where. You work hard or or the the man of the house works hard and provides and you know the the wife does the homely cleanings and all that sort of thing and uh what else kids go to school go to college um entrepreneurial you know interest but you're still working a nine to five that's providing for that's the heart and soul of conservatism um is sticking to those sort of the family values, as they'd say. And so you also have like, in America, obviously, with the abundance of Christians that we have, you know, you go to church, you go to school, you, you say your prayers, eat your Wheaties, that sort of mentality. Um, and also you're seeing like, smaller, like when it comes to the ideal, it's smaller government, It anything that the government would do to infringe upon People in any sort of way, you're you're seeing less of that. You're also going to see less of social programs because that's another form of big government. Um, You support the military, though, because that's a form of patriotism. And so that's why you support the boys in blue and law and order and all that kind of stuff. Because you want to support this sort of patriotic national sense that like our country is a good and orderly country. it's it's great for those attributes um and i kind of hinted at it with the speak of religion that like you know that's a a, an important part to all the people um even though it's respected that necessarily that can't be reflected in the policies like verbatim like you can't say like god ordained such thing to be this law and like you can't say stuff like that in the laws and legislation but you can, or you you can fashion a number of laws after, you know, a holy book or something like that. The Bible in case of a lot of American conservatives, um, that's a very traditional sort of sense of like a conservative, you know, that's going away. That's getting closer to a boomer and millennial older millennial area area. Um, of conservative thought, because as you go down to the younger people, the ideals of concert, like what is a conservative kind of has started to change. Um, especially when it comes to policy things and stuff like that has started to change just because of the landscape of the, the politics that we've been seeing and sort of how the country has been for the past couple decades. Um, But I'll get into that after I do the left, because I'll talk about how the younger generation sees that um, after that, too. And so your typical, your typical like leftist, uh, liberal, I guess you would even say, because like the left has gone through a number of changes because of the complete and utter domination by the republican party by the gop um because after nixon you you saw that's when you really saw the coalescing of this kind of this is what the conservative voter base is the the democratic party was in a loss for how they were going to respond to that and so they tried a few different things in the efforts, but like you got Ford, who was a weak president, who was a weak Democrat, um, and didn't match the same sort of progressive um, policy making as an FDR, uh, JFK, and LBJ. Like he was nowhere close to that kind of forward going, you know, and strong economic policy progressive. But Ford kind of did usher in the era or or give way to the era that you'd see like a Clinton-type Democrat. And so that's kind of, I guess, the Democrats would be talking about because this also comes with the age divide too. Um, Clinton is what politically, political ideology would say is like a neoliberal, a real, I mean, no, I guess he would just be a liberal. He is a more traditional, uh, we want to use the government to give freedoms or, or we we don't mind big government because we think it, it allows for more freedoms to the people. You can provide more benefits and more, you know, uh, social safety net sort of systems to the people. Now, the problem too with the sort of clinton versus the jfk and the fdr is like the see, and this kind of gets into the politician. This wise is going to be a little bit of a you got to ride the got to ride the wave with me sort of podcast right now. In rhetoric, he was a lot more progressive and the ideology is not necessarily as conservative as the, he governed. But that's kind of the thing with this, with this Clinton style of politician, um, and when Neville became the Obama and Joe Biden style of, you know, a, a neoliberal basically of where they are still very friendly and still very friendly policy-wise, not in demeanor. You know, they're still very. Um, helpful and have they still have that same conservative politician heart when it comes to corporations and the wealthy, they just took a better stance or or a more progressive stance on social issues. So they were willing to, you know, forego tradition, so to speak, and say, yeah, well, gay marriage should be a thing and, you know, you shouldn't discriminate against blacks and brown people and all uh any other group that could be discriminated against shouldn't do that they were basically willing to wipe away all those and then they also were for higher taxes too um and again kind of just with this description put a little asterisk on it um because ultimately this was in rhetoric and in i in uh ideation this is what they stood for but as you will come to find out with American politics, money is, is king. Money will determine how somebody votes, or if not money, it's going to be political ambition. That's going to determine how you vote and kind of what your real policy sort of are that, that is greater than any sort of political ideation. If you're an elected official. And so going to what's more of the the left now and kind of what people see the left now is um and mind you what i just described and talked about and so let me back up a second i talked a lot about how left politicians were that neoliberal politician the voter the person Um, they very much believed in all the sort of, they believed in the rhetoric that would be, that was being said, um, very much. So you believe in all the social issues and you believe in the rights for everybody. You believe in having certain, um, social safety nets like that, like social security and expanding that and Medicare expanding that. Um you know, all these sorts of things that the government could do um, in order to benefit the citizens and bolster their quality of life. That is what the typical, you know, liberal voter believed in, or believes in. Um, And they're also more forgiving of when politicians don't do it. when Paul, like when, when their party's politician just doesn't get through that particular agenda, they're not as hard nosed on the the point of like, you should have still done, there's no excuse. They're more forgiving and willing to say, well, next time, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna get them. Uh, you know, they're always gonna follow party line voting all that kind of stuff. That's like your boomer to, you know, old millennials. That's like them to a, a key description of like, they believe in all the, the social issues talked about. They're not really super in the trenches with the economic policy and legislation because honestly, uh, a lot of Democrats, a lot of neoliberals aren't talking about that because it's very similar to conservative um, economic strategizing and economic policies. So you talk about your differences. You talk about social issues, and this is what the left believes, and they're more progressive. And a lot of people obviously don't want to, you know, hate gays and uh, hate people of different races and immigrants and stuff like that. This is the way they go. And then as you get to the younger side, um, the sort of leftist changes, like not necessarily 100% political ideation when it comes to social issues. A lot of that stays the same, but it's the matter of on economic issues, that's um, very much different and more pro-social programs, more pro the expansion of them in a much more aggressive way, Um, a lot more educated, I would even dare to say, just because of the frequency of, of being on the internet and being exposed to all this information and being able to see it themselves, they get a lot more exposure to the fact of what politicians are really doing uh, when it comes to their economic legislation and how that hurts people. And there's much more of a focus on, you know, how people are affected by economic, how different social groups are affected by certain economic legislation that politicians will, uh, that left Democrat politicians will vote on, um, but still, even though they're more, they're more exposed to these things, they're still hyper focused on social issues, which not saying they're not important, but, you know, foreign policy is kind of a a non thing. Um, And a number of economic policies are still a sort of non factor outside of their uh, direct impact on these social groups. You know, so it's like, no one's really talking about the different ways you could realize Medicare for all, they're sort of just Talking about the why we should have medicare for all and the benefits of it to x group this group that group um no one is talking really about the necessity for why you make things universal or federal it's more or less whatever uh the pitch was packaged to them as and so that's where you see a lot and then in a sort of, you know, red versus blue mentality, the identities and more sort of like social, how we decide to make each other up um, aspects of the left, the young left and young right differ very much in the sense that, you know, where one prides themselves on you know i'm a super rugged individual and i'm lifting myself up by my bootstraps and you know you're so uneducated about you just don't know economics that's a super big young right wing thing this young right winger thing to say the left the young left will in a similar fashion you know tell you how you don't know anything about the different social nuances and how you're not being PC enough necessarily and how you need to focus and respect all these different, you know, peoples and individuals and groups, um, ways of being and life and culture and all this sort of stuff. And this isn't to necessarily say one's better than the other. I mean, personally, yes, I will agree that Yeah, respect people and all that sort of stuff. But I'm also not going to sit here and cancel somebody for, you know, a joke made X amount of years ago. And, you know, I'm still going to allow people the room for growth and that kind of stuff. And that's something that the left has not – the young left, the Twitter mob left, they have not been uh, so polite to do or complimentary to do, you know. But again, that's kind of the, uh, like I said, in a a red versus blue and you are them and we are us sort of way in a tribalistic sort of sense, you could say. The personalities that are associated with these sort of politics and and the way they see policy, that's where they come uh, into conflict. As a side, that's kind of sad because ideologically, there is a bigger overlap here than <clears throat> we allowed to really, than our places of communication are sort of, you know, media space really allow for it. Um, and that sucks, but that's also kind of the game of American politics. And so I hope that all kinds kind of makes sense. And, um, Kind of, you guys understand, like, how kind of the landscape is cut up from an older, like, on age, an older generation who believed, who believes certain ideals and is more accustomed to a certain level of civility and decorum um, on both sides. And so that's why older voters like a Mitt Romney versus a Trump, you know. And also why older voters like an Obama or a Biden over Bernie Sanders, you know, understanding these kind of differences, because if you look at policy wise, these things have nothing to do with policy, you know, I mean, outside of a few key things, all these people are out of the politicians I named, maybe excluding Bernie. By and large are all paid off by large industries, you know, oil and oil, Silicon Valley, uh, which would be your tech companies. Uh, Any company that has a large investment in overseas trading and labor, you know, these companies sort of have their hands in the pocket and kind of hand the pens and the bills to sign off of uh to elected officials so that their policies look a certain kind of way and present a certain kind of way to favor them ultimately meaning that the commonality between democrats and republicans uh economically and you know they're, they're all voting the same sort of way and all agreeing that we're going to further you know wars and overseas labor and cheap overseas labor um, cutting on social safety net so people have less choices and have to work jobs that are you know demoralizing you know that's that's kind of that flavor of the older sort of establishment politicians, but going back to the voters really quick, the rhetoric and the things that they say and the things that uh, legacy media or mainstream media uh, reports about them or, or, you know, sort of just allows them to kind of say, they, they platform them as we'd say now. Um, the voters, they full-heartedly believe these things and they believe the sort of, Media pictures, given and kind of like the history that I'm sure some of them have seen, um, boomers for sure. They they have seen at least some of these politicians who had a, a stronger political ideation um, on the left and right. But you know they <clears throat> they see uh they they see and believe the the sort of image that these politicians get and that is kind of the key difference between older generation the younger generation right now is that the younger generation just does not believe the sort of image given um with the more legacy more establishment you know politicians they don't believe it but in saying that and also that's also because their news sources are different too Younger people don't watch TV as much, and so they didn't really grow up with the, with the same, you know, establishment, like, how can I say it? They didn't grow up with necessarily the reverence for, you know, like the MSNBCs and Foxes and CNNs. They didn't really grow up with that, or, or the New York Post or Washington Post or stuff like that. Like, they didn't grow up with the reverence for these establishment media outlets. And so that means that they get their information from a wider range of places and more independent medias, more, you know, not bought off media, basically, um, who give honest opinions and honest facts about, you know, the sort of situation they give like a real take on what they believe is going on or what they see is happening. So they're kind of molding it in a more intellectually honest place. Um, even though it's not necessarily hundred percent true, there is misinformation. There are you know, dishonest actors, but because you have such a wide range of news outlets, you can cross reference and cross sort of, uh, not analyze, but you can, you can take this one idea and cross it with a number of different speakers to really kind of get a, a view and value on what the person is saying. And so I guess this kind of goes into like, the sort of political speak and, and all that kind of stuff that i wanted to get into um because we've been talking about the politicians and media and so what you have to know when it comes to this is uh a lot of the labels that i've used already and a lot of the terms that you hear like socialist or you know Antifa or uh Black Lives Matter or Communism or Al-Qaeda, you know, a lot of these words or or, no the war on drugs, uh the Middle East wars, like a lot of these words and terms don't necessarily all mean the same thing, or they're said to invoke certain things within the viewers because they've already been you know, through time conditioned, uh, to have a certain response. And so like a word like Al Qaeda, nine 11, that's like, you know, these legacy news media outlets have conditioned their viewers to have certain, you know, associations and certain, uh, preconceived notions about the, the things they're hearing so they can get them to a certain place in the messaging. <clears throat> Sounds like conspiracy stuff I know, but uh this is this is America 101, you know, propaganda central it was born right here. And so just breaking down the top certain news outlets right now. Uh MSNBC is about as far left as you're getting. You know, that's the establishment left, that's the establishment sort of Democrat propaganda network, I'd say. Then your CNN is the neutrality uh, center. It's the neutrality hub, but that's their bias completely, is that the establishment view, okay, so things that go in line with the establishment point of view and perspective, but we're not necessarily going to cater to any party. We're not necessarily going to cater to any, you know, party's political agenda, or. Hey everybody. Um, funny story about why you're hearing a break in the little, little rant I was going on is because my recording got cut right in the middle of, uh, what I was saying. And so this is the next day I had to, you know, listen back a little bit. Um, just to kind of refresh what I was saying. Um, but from what I w- was just listening to, basically I was kind of outlining what sort of CNN kind of was and how it's sort of the neutrality, um, bias network for the establishment point of view and perspective. And uh, I don't know if I already mentioned Fox. I'm pretty sure uh, I, I already mentioned MSNBC. But in the event that I didn't, um, it's always good to give the quick refresher. And so with a sip of my coffee, I will do just that. And so, yeah, um, with MSNBC, obviously, it's the establishment, you know, Democrat network, the Nancy Pelosi stenographers, you could say. Um, Fox news is going to be on the other end of that spectrum. And they're the more, especially after the sort of Trump, uh, divide in the Republican party, they are absolutely the more establishment Republican, John McCain, Mitt Romney style Republicans. Um, and so that's kind of like where their personality and demeanor sort of goes. And that's how they kind of frame and shape a lot of their news and narratives. And that's also why. They'll allow on a lot of progressives um, because progressives are critical of the Democratic Party and people like Tucker Carlson, especially. They appeal to a more populist uh, movement in the younger people. And so those progressive criticisms uh, are, are tagged and coupled along with like sort of right wing, you know, partisan hate for the Democratic Party and, you know, the old guards of the Democratic Party. And so. That's kind of what we see with Fox News, but even further to the right than Fox News is like your Newsmax and, uh, oh, what is the other one? Uh, it's Newsmax and One America, I think is the name of it, One America News Network. Those are your new sort of Trump Tea Party, uh, right-wing, you know, evangelicals uh that that's like the base and that's like the kind of ideology that they kind of go with and so they have a lot of stories that just kind of cater to that sort of demographic um and they're a little more hawkish and they're a lot more whoa well, sensational let's say than fox network than the fox news network and so that's kind of your mainstream media legacy media outlets um that's kind of like their deal and their spiel and then you go away from that to independent medias, which is what a lot more young people listen to, what a lot more young people uh, get their news from. And also kind of how a lot more reporters and journalists, the avenues that they're going into, so they're not you know being censored by uh, higher ups in a company. What you see more there is a, a slew of people and so like on the right wing side you have your Steven Crowder's and Ben Shapiro's and Candace Owens and uh, whoever else those are some big names right now. Um, Tim Polk kinda. Jordan Peterson that's another big name. Um, and then moving to the left you have your Kyle Kalinske's Crystal Balls. Um, someone who's uh, a good in the middle, who I'd say is a centrist, but he'd probably claim he's just more straight up conservative, is a Sager, uh, whatever his last name is, I forget. But he's the co host on Breaking Points, which is a podcast out there, and formerly was the co host on uh, Rising. That's one of the, the Outlet The Hill, and that was one of their um, media sort of news shows. But he was a co-host with Crystal, and then they went away and uh, proceeded to do Breaking Points. But he's a good middle ground because he's a lot more conservative in a lot of senses. But he's still really populist, and he's still he's a much more genuine actor than maybe a Ben Shapiro type. He's not necessarily a partisan um, actor when it comes to you know how he's going to deliver the news and criticize politicians and different political agendas. You know, so he's like the middle ground between the the right wing, the right wing. Um, sort of new media outlets, it, it would be him right there. And then you're going into your Kyles and Crystals and uh, Vosh, who's a streamer on Twitch and also a, a YouTuber. Um, Piker Hassan, who's a uh, Twitch streamer, and I believe he's also on YouTube. But they're pretty progressive names. Um, Glenn Greenwald, who was with The Intercept and left, he's a pretty leftist... Uh. Journalist and reporter, Uh, I think he's currently in Brazil right now and, you know, being threatened every day that he's there um, because he's so against the current administration down there. And he's openly very critical about them. He also helped with the Julian Assange leaks and all that sort of stuff. Um, Jimmy Dore is another one who is, uh, uh, you know, he's a comedian and also a political commentator. Uh, on the left who's very vocal he did the you know uh fight for 15 and the force the vote and all that sort of stuff he was doing a lot of that and he's behind a lot of that stuff so that's kind of the political landscape you see there um and the benefit of new media as a whole is that you're getting a lot more genuine expression of like what these people's uh perceptions are of what is really going on in the country uh, of what's really going on a lot of these different news stories and that and all that stuff and you're avoiding a lot more of the sensational news stories that aren't really policy driven aren't really integral to your uh well-being or life and they're not like intentionally sort of divisive to um stir up ratings you know it's not ratings focused and money focused uh news cat or news coverage and political commentating It's we believe in this ideology, but we believe in that ideology, like maybe you're a libertarian, maybe you're a, you know, anarcho-capitalist, maybe you're a socialist, you know, maybe you're any one of these things. There's someone out there who's really giving news about that ideology or they're giving the news of the world and of today or in your local area with actual opinion and critique and sort of perspective from a certain ideology. And that's important because what establishment media, what mainstream media or legacy media, what they try to do is to say they're not biased and then act as if any sort of bias is inherently wrong um, and is going to, you know, completely destroy or misframe the sort of story that you're being given. And that's true that it can do that. But if your audience is aware of the bias to begin with, then you can have a much more clear understanding of the news being covered and also the spin that might be put on it. And so you can at least being aware of that also increases like your understanding of like, oh, this is how you see that perspective, you know, because just as important as a story is perspective is also an important thing on how people take in the story and people. Um, may relay the story or weigh it against their own values. And so that's why mainstream media, establishment media, they're, you know, we are giving you complete actual factual news is absolutely ridiculous. And why getting more of a, not opinion-based, but um, getting a flavor of someone's perspective and also getting a flavor of like, you know, this is, this is an actual, uh, emotion an actual sort of like how this ideal comes in conflict with story, or like, we're talking about the real principles of the story that is so important to news coverage. Um, you know, and, and when you're not bought or when you're not being backed and funded by, uh, you know, billion or million billionaires, that's kind of important, uh, with those kind of things, you know? So in saying that that's kind of the big divide between legacy media mainstream media and also that's kind of you know the who's giving this kind of news who's giving that kind of news and then you as a viewer now can watch all of it and kind of make your own sort of uh, decisions and kind of just sort of see what's really up you know because i'll give you a personal anecdote i know that's uh, worth as, that's worth about as much as a penny or so in today's economy. But I like to give this anecdote to people because in a, a landscape where everybody's saying something different, everybody is giving conflicting opinions and it's a partisan, you know, fight of, if you don't believe in my side, then you're a terrible person. Um, hearing this, you know, can help a lot of people. At least I think. So when I got into like finding politics and stuff like that, um, in like early high school, I remember a friend of mine told me about the young Turks and I kind of watched the young Turks for a little bit. I didn't really like, you know, the sort of news coverage that they were doing. Cause it was, um, it it was boring to me. Cause like I, I couldn't relate to, you know, Chank or Anna or any of those people, I kind of remember Jimmy Dore being there or seeing clips of him, but I didn't really watch that. Um, Kyle was one of the first people that I saw, and I was like, oh, like, I I really appreciate his news coverage because it is, you know, understandable. He broke it down, and he was giving you, you know, A, B, and C happen, and this is my take on it, and this is what it means, you know, this is what... The political double speak really means this is what the politicians are actually saying um and you know like how a lawyer would do in a contract he just kind of broke down the wording to kind of tell you what the loopholes are what the uh non-committal statements what they really mean and how you should you know look like how you should look at it and kind of appraise it and be like look man this is what they're really giving you you know so i appreciate that because i'm able to also look at that now and you know weigh his uh i can appraise his critique and his analysis and i can go like oh do i think this guy is you know losing and i think he's crazy do i think this is all sort of you know bs or does he have some sort of merit here let me go look this up let me go do that this that, and the other um and so i did a lot of that but also this was a time of like anti-sjw uh like you know debate bro sort of era. Um and I was big into that scene too. I was, you know, the amazing atheist. I watched a lot of his stuff. Um for those of you who don't know TJ Kirk at that time. He was doing a lot of like SJWs are making issues out of nothing. And you know it, it would be these ridiculous over the top sort of stories of like SJWism and, and it being like a hundred percent censorship to whatever party they're attacking at the time and people trolling them being antagonistic back to them. I found that entertaining because it was like, to me at the time it was, you know, you're taking things that aren't that serious and you know, you're, you're making a really big deal of, you know, you're making the OJ trials out of, somebody jaywalking, you know? And so, yeah, I'd watch, you know, people debate them and talk about all these different things. this none the other. Um, and slowly that got me into the sort of right wing bubble of like, I am so much smarter than you. And, uh, I am just looking at the facts, you know, which at that time, because it was a sort of millennial liberal and like boomer liberal notion of like, you know, you shouldn't question the, the sort of narratives that we're saying and this that, and the other, you know, just respect what we're saying. Cause we're, we are advocating for the oppressed people, even though there are a bunch of these oppressed people who are saying y'all are not helping us. But you know, that, that was kind of the, the sort of narrative going on at the time. This is sort of the landscape of what was happening. Um, to make a long story short, though, yeah. So I got to listening to the Steven Crowders and the Ben Shapiros and all of this sort of thing. And uh, Jordan Peterson, he was, for a little while, uh, especially around the Canada law that... Or the talks of the Canada, Canadian legislation about making uh, transgender people and gender-protected class in Canada. Which was, by the right, totally mischaracterized and they didn't necessarily frame it in the most honest sense if you're if you're a conservative on the right and um also too like just side note when we're talking about like how other countries sort of play in our politics and how they sort of adopt the rhetoric and banter from you know american politics it always comes off weird because The things they're saying and the sort of rhetoric that they're giving out doesn't necessarily apply outside of America in the same sort of sense. Like they don't have the same, you know, double speak that we do and they don't have the same history that make people assume certain things or assume certain connotations. So when they speak, it kind of seems like, like they don't necessarily realize the message that people are receiving from their words. And so it's automatically a disconnect there. Um, but that's kind of just a side note that I've noticed from hearing like, you know, different people from Europe or different figures from Europe and Canada sort of talk on American politics or talk about like conservatism in like the American sense. Um, you know, it, it always comes off as like a you must not, you must not really be understanding your audience when you're saying this sort of thing. Anyways, though back to talking about, you know, political landscapes and all that sort of stuff. Um, let me pull up my notes really quick so I can see what our next sort of big topic is going to be. Right, right, right. So political right and left, that's something I got into, like, kind of, and how that kind of breaks up with the ages. Um. And so I've been talking around it, what I'm about to mention now. I've been kind of talking around this political political double speak. You know, what what do I mean when I say that? So what I mean is that when we hear our politicians talk and when we hear you know political commentators speak on a number of you know political issues, this that and the other, uh, whether it be actual legislation, a party's agenda. Um, a whole host of things just related to DC affairs and how it affects the rest of the country. There's a certain sort of double speak that they give off that if you haven't been trained to listen to it, if you haven't already been kind of privy to the fact that like their words don't always mean, what we, uh, interpret them as, then you might miss, you know, some of the messaging that they're kind of really saying. And so like things like socialism or communism, um, establishment media, you know, whether it be Republicans or Democrat, you know, Fox or MSNBC, I should say, when they say socialism, they're absolutely referring to authoritarian governments. Um, Even though anybody can look up what socialism is and understand that socialism is the economic framework for how the country will work and not necessarily doesn't really have anything to do with the governance of authority, like of the authority. You know, that's how you can have Cuba and you can also have Sweden and they are both socialist uh, countries. Well, I guess Sweden's more of a, a sort of mixed market. Um, but you, you understand what I'm saying, you can have a Nordic system of socialism versus a Soviet Union, uh, system of socialism, because the economics, you know, the, the government is in charge of a lot of the marketplace and a lot of the, the, you know, means of not the means of it doesn't seize all means of production, but it's in charge of a large amount of them and make sure it provides a large amount of social safety nets and, uh, social programs for the people but that doesn't inherently translate to military uh, authoritarianism or totalitarianism, you know, that's, that's where things get lost in translation. But because a, a number of generations of people now have grown up on the fact that, Oh, cold war and the socialist communist threat to America's freedom and democracy, capitalism, um, you know, socialism, communism is bad. Inherently, and it means that death camps, you know, that's sort of the connotation that they've bred, the propagandization that they've, you know, done uh, to the word socialism and communism. And it sort of kind of changed the the meaning of these words completely. And so that's sort of an easy one. Capitalism is one where that's also changed its meaning and, and sort of changed the connotation or not the meaning necessarily, but the connotations around capitalism have changed. And so when we hear capitalism, we, a lot of people mainstream media at least has tried to do this condition you to believe freedom, you know, that's sort of not even just a mainstream media thing. That's an American, you know, schooling system thing. Capitalism is freedom, free marketplace. You get to do whatever you want. You know, you could buy this, sell that you can, you know, be an entrepreneur. You can work for somebody, do anything you want. The problem with this though, is that it ignores the fact that capitalism is a system that the more money you have, the more leverage and pull and sort of uh, autonomy and, and ability to assert your own will in that marketplace. um, You get like, you get more of that, uh, the ability to do that with more money you have. And so freedom, in a certain sense, yes, is like, the government is not restricting you, you know, from doing things within the marketplace. But it's also like we talked about in a previous episode, it also doesn't take into consideration, uh, positive freedoms, or the sort of things that need to be given to you in order to actualize, you know, certain rights that you have, or Certain freedoms, uh, you know, you need to be given something to take advantage of them. That's kind of what I'm saying here. So, you know, capitalism obviously does not address that and it avoids that. And uh, going back to what I said originally, that's kind of the word association that they've kind of done to a lot of people. where Capitalism is absolutely the best and that's why you know, that's why everybody needs to have it. That's kind of the the propaganda that they've done to a number of people. So that's why also when people talk about socialism, they automatically weighed against capitalism. They've also made this false dichotomy of these two things that you either have this or you have that. You have this or that. You cannot have both. Um, Even though, uh, as we see in a lot of the Nordic countries and a lot of european countries and canada a mixed market is a real impossible thing and we even have somewhat of a mixed market here and we have had you know fluctuations of that over the different centuries i mean not centuries decades where you know sometimes certain social safety nets come with a more established country like medicare for all and a free college and or free college uh federal jobs mandate and you know universal basic income some of these things come along with a more developed country and they don't hinder the free marketplace you know uh worker co-op is a socialist ideal uh enacted in the private sector you know so instead of the government taking over means it's just breaking up the sort of private sector tyrannies that are currently there by having such a rigid hierarchy and, let me break down what I'm saying. So if you're in the private sector, you know, Jeff Bezos is, or was CEO of Amazon. He was the King of Amazon. Okay. That's kind of how you could see that. And the workers are, you know, the serfs, the serfs or or whatever, the peasantry class of Amazon. And they were all at the behest of King Bezos. Now, uh, that is a very feudalist and, and, you know, monarch sort of system. But if you were to add the ideals of socialism in that, that's when you get a worker co-op where all these workers uh, and Jeff Bezos all have equal share and holding within the company and they vote on certain dynamics of within the company. So instead of Jeff Bezos being paid you know a uh, hundred thousand times more than his workers he only makes a certain amount and people vote on the amounts of bonuses that he'll get or the amounts of you know the amount of money uh discrepancy between the lowest position and the highest position you know and they'll vote on who should be in certain positions and all this sort of thing or this side or the other out of a number of candidates it would depend on how the people want to organize that. Um, but that's again, a, a, socialist ideal within the, what you call it within the private sector. Um, and see, this is another sort of, as I'm going through it, I'm kind of realizing more of them. Um, socialism and democracy have also been pitted against each other because capitalism and democracy have been coupled together, you know, Uh, free market and everybody, you know, and free market and the people are free to choose how they want to run the government. That's kind of the implicit sort of statement made when we say, you know, capitalism and we associate it with democracy. That's sort of the implicit statement made in the American sort of, you know, propaganda lines and what media will traditionally argue, uh, what the establishment sort of argument would be. But in reality, like, uh, I kind of mentioned earlier, and like I've said in previous episodes, this notion of positive freedom, this notion that you need to give people something in order for them to, you know, actualize their right and their freedoms to sur- and, and be free, um, would suggest that something like socialism does not take away from democracy, but in fact aids it and also is a necessary part to achieve a, a better democracy because now you're giving people the means to really participate instead of being focused on survival you know that with social safety nets you're giving them the means to do those things to participate in their government um you know again these are the kind of backroom dynamics and, and really it's just generations of saying the same thing so much that people just now believe it's the truth that's what happens, you know, in, in an Orwellian sort of fashion, they've changed the words on us. Um, and speaking of, or like, really Orwellian stuff, you know, wokeness from the right-wingers when they say it, uh, they've been saying about the infrastructure bill, there's nothing woke about it. Woke was for social things like, you know, anti-racism and, you know, uh, being an ally and stuff like that. You know, social issues that progressives, young progressive champion, um, that was to be woke. And really before that, it was like all the pro-black, uh, you know, black conscious movement stuff. And that's where you kind of got the term being woke. And, you know, it's been, as time goes on, it's been adopted for other, you know, uses and stuff. But now it's just a, a catch-all term to describe anything progressive. And even outside of the realms of social issues it's you know, for, for sure economic policy, but it's not like, that's not how that's not the proper use of the word, you know, but for a number of people, it's a dog whistle for them so that they hear it and they go, Oh, I'm not for that. I'm against that, you know, for a number of conservatives, it's for a number of conservatives, it's, uh kind of their signal from the other conservative members that, hey, they're progressive, or hey, they're a Democrat. Because even when Republicans say progressive, you know, progressive is just a, a slanderous term in Republican media or conservative media. Um, because they say Joe Biden is progressive and doing the Bernie agenda when he's co- more closely related to, you know, uh, john boehner or somebody like that or mitch mcconnell than any real progressive or progressive uh policy advocate you know it shows the disconnect from the actual meanings of these words to the actual you know sort of like what the agenda has crafted these words to be uh you know and another now i'm again sort of thinking about and going through it another sort of big thing that is sort of coupled with this double speak are, you know, sort of lies of omission or, uh, how could I say Um, maybe not even lies of omission. It's sometimes it's straight up just like red herring arguments, uh, that are completely not or non sequiturs even things that are just completely not related to the actual issue. So like, This is the big one with the uh, Haitian border crisis that I've been hearing is there's a big issue with, you know, the border uh, patrol people and the officers at the border. Um, The video came out of them on horses hitting Haitians as they're crossing the, the river with riding crops and, you know, sort of brutalizing them and is very reminiscent of, you know, old American slavery, you know, sort of dynamics of the overseer and beating Kuta Kinte uh, on the back, you know, the right wing sort of way to combat that is saying, oh, did you know that there are a number of Haitians who aren't even coming from Haiti and they're coming from other Latin American countries? And they have been there after like 2008, when they had their earthquake, they've move to these countries and now they're coming to america did you guys know that did you guys know that they're not really suffering you know they, they had already made a life for themselves in these other countries now they're coming to america and you know it steals jobs from immigrants that doesn't necessarily address the sort of issue we have with them beating these people with riding crops as they come into the country i i think you know not saying that that's not something we can't address is just that this is not a defense um, and you shouldn't use it as a defense of what these people are doing now. And so that's kind of a common use tactic, not of just the right, that was just the one I could think of, but uh, of establishment media, when you have legitimate, unarguable criticisms of something that's going on or, or observations even of what's going on uh, in the story, pertain to a story, you know. And, uh, oh, uh, just thought of another great double speak. Um, When we talk about pro-life, pro-choice, when we talk about right to work and unionization, you know, when we talk about even defund the police. and, And these are all extreme cases of, either poor naming poor, you know, messaging, um, or straight up, you know, messaging to get an advantage over the other side. So like pro-life, pro-choice is the very obvious one. You know, who's going to say they are anti-life who's going to say they're anti-life. Um, and so that's why you come back with pro-choice, you know, but even that, like, It leaves so much on the table because even with that, that eliminates the nuance of, you know, say you are pro-choice, but maybe there's a line, you know, maybe you're someone who says, you know, after so many months, uh, it's a no-go, like you can't abort the baby after so many months. Um, Maybe you're a, till the head pops out, you know, and so you can scramble the baby a day before it comes out. I mean there, that is a legitimate position that some people take, you know, and they're all just sort of coupled together, even though the, even within that, that is drastically different. And then, you know, you don't quite see that much with the pro-choice side, because I mean, I mean, not pro-choice pro-life because they don't want the procedure to happen at all. So there you go. Um, right to work, you know, right to work states, being anti-union states or union busting states that's really what that means the right to work less is a way i've heard it phrased too because ultimately it's saying that or a lot of right to work legislation is just legislation that makes it harder to form a union and harder to you know uh make that union be of any merit or or actually be useful for workers, uh, once it is made and started. And so, but when you say right to work, it sounds like, you know, what this is combating is people trying to stop people from working. And so obviously, yeah, people can get fooled by that and say, yeah, I want to, I want to work. I I have a family. I want to work. But again, that's why it's important to know these sorts of messagings. Um, And to also know that with the unionization thing in particular, productivity has been on a steady incline for the past couple decades now. And after unionization started to go down and started to dissolve, you saw the drop off with wages go, uh, in, in a very close correlation with it. So for that i said you know unionize unionize you know this is a populist show with pro labor show i am saying more unions the better you know and more unions that communicate with other unions uh, across the seas you know across borders with you know across state borders uh on the federal level too you know truly as close to the you know ground level to the very top unionization and in very good communications to try to eliminate that corruptness and that can happen when these things come into isolation um unionize unionize and then the last one i mentioned was oh yeah uh defund the police that was another one that was just that's just bad messaging because for people that you know take it like this the boomer and older millennial crowd has been for for liberals let's just say because the right wing uh, or conservatives they're obviously law and order sort of people and folks part of the sort of liberal identity is that sort of peace and decorum sentiment so they're not against law and order but they just want just law and order you know they they want the government to do things to ensure the safety of the people ensure the, the, you know, peace, so to speak. And so when defund the police really means like reallocation of, you know, duties and, you know, adjustments. So like police aren't doing necessarily, uh, you know, kicking homeless people out of the the areas and neighborhoods and stuff like that. Um, police aren't, you know, doing a number of non, basically nonviolent criminal related actions. Um, Like there is a way to frame that message so that it's people saying like, this is how, you know, almost like we want to help the police not have to do these sorts of things. And so that we can bring those individuals in that still also hold a more progressive view. Because, you know, Shoot me right now. Uh, Not every cop is is a, you know, Trump or conservative. And they're still gettable, you know. That's kind of the thing that kills me with that is, like, you just want to shut out a a whole group of people when you really don't have the legs to do such a thing, you know. Uh, And and I always say this one, when it comes to if I'd ever, you know, think about, like, Talking about coalition building and all that kind of stuff. Building a coalition, right? You know, bringing conservatives. Conservative is such a broad term. You know, I might not bring in the Trump, you know, the, the super Trump QAnon person. But I'm absolutely going to bring an ecological conservative. You know, people that believe in saving the environment and, you know, keeping it, restoring it, uh, producing more of it. And then at a certain point, once we get to the, once the country gains a certain number of policies, like a, a better social security, a better, you know, healthcare situation, a free college, the people that support that staying the same, those are conservatives at that point. You know, those people are conservatives um, because they want to abide to the tradition of having these sorts of institutions that people can rely on those people become conservatives, you know, by definition. And so, yeah, those individuals absolutely come on too. you know, people who support, you know, meritocracy and uh, hard work as a, you know, traditional value of America that should be upholded and they see that the country and the legislation in the country and the elites have not been doing that. You know, they'd be conservative. They'd be populist more than anything, but they'd absolutely be conservative, too, because they want to uphold that tradition of, you know, and bring it back and, and, you know, uh, fortify it. That's just what it is, man. That's just what it is. You know, you can't let the labels uh, mire you down when you're looking at the substance of what's being said and you're agreeing with it. You know, and it agrees with your values, really. You can't let, because they don't mean anything at that point. They're just words. And if you let the labels mean something, that means more to you and your principles than it does for the person in theirs. Um. So yeah, the next from this, we are going to transition to. One of the other big things that media does along with this double speak, along with the you know lies of omission or the complete obfuscation off of whatever the topic may be at the certain uh, moment, whatever the real policy critique may be. And we're going to talk about voters versus the elected officials and sort of how these two groups should be addressed because a lot of shenanigans get played. Because people will couple both of these things as if they're the same thing because, oh, they're all Republicans. They're all Democrats. It's very not true, though, because if that was the case, you would see a greater divide on certain policies that you just don't see because they're, you know, the people, the voters have a certain um, ideology because of the reality that they face. And what they are, you know, what their values are set on. The majority of people, uh, even the majority of Republicans, I believe at this point are pro a lot of these social programs like Medicare for all free college, uh, not UBI, it's a couple of other ones that they're overwhelming on. Those are the two biggest ones for sure though, Medicare for all and free college the the good old how are you going to pay for it policies those are the people have already decided that's what they want um and so what how and why is that not reflected in our pol- you know major political parties and the simple answer the short answer is money obviously um money due to the fact that a lot of these politicians are career politicians and so once they get out they want to be set either you get set during your time because you've done enough uh you know greasing the palm of certain private corporations and certain other political figures who have power and position in your party so maybe you got buddy-buddy with Nancy Pelosi, and now when she gets out, you know you're going to take her spot as Speaker of the House or a leader of the Democratic Party. You know, that's that's pretty good, and you're going to get a lot of favors on the way. You're, you're going to be in a good position if you're in the good graces with the higher-ups in the political party. Um, or you can be what we've now found out about Kristen Sinema or what the speculation is about her. And you could be ready to be on your way out Earl, or any former president basically. And you could be, you know, you're going to be on your way out at a certain time. And so you've done enough palm greasing again to once you get out, you're assured speaking positions or, or speaking events that pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're assured positions at different companies um, and the Vice versa also works too, where because you've dealt with these politicians and you've helped them and you've funded a lot of their projects now, maybe you get a cabinet seat, you get a, you know, you become a senator, you become an elected official at the local level. So you have more control in the city or the town that, you know, your business is in. All these things are the influences. Uh, placed upon elected officials. And at the very bottom of that is the constituency, the people, because ultimately their money doesn't really mean anything. The higher up on this political ladder, you go their words and opinions and needs and desires go left on, you know, they're left unheard because ultimately they're not affecting the country, uh, in that dramatic of a way as a Bill Gates is or as a Bezos or a Musk would for that elected official. And so that's this is the ultimate big cutoff between the ideologies and all that sort of stuff. And so then the game becomes for politicians, how can I persuade you, the people, to act out of your own interest? Well, I will say the things that you believe and then still serve my donor class of people that I know are going to assure me my livelihood and my, you know, safety and sanctity once I'm either headed out or going to come into another field or something like that. You know, they're beholden to their true constituency, the people with money. And so yeah that leaves a lot of people you know you're kind of asked out uh so to speak because we are we are left in a peculiar position where you have to trust these politicians knowing that a large number of them aren't going to act in your interest uh especially not consistently they might do it every now and then because if you completely lose the people, then you lose a lot of power and you lose a lot of leverage. Um, that money can't necessarily buy all the time. You know, money goes a long way in America, but having the belief and faith and, and having the people, you know, sort of subdued is also another powerful thing that is sometimes more is priceless compared to money. And so, you have to give in to certain demands. And this is also where political strategizing comes in. Um, Like with this infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package and how they're trying to, the democratic party right now is trying to keep them uh, interlocked. They're trying to make these things two bills that must go together because ultimately they're right. If the reconciliation doesn't go through and the, infrastructure package that a lot of the oil and uh, basically dirty energy and a lot of other industrial industries want, they would rather that go through than the infrastructure deal because that's going to give a little too much to the people and give them a little more autonomy and choice um, and hurt their pockets a little bit too. They, you know, so they they want the weaker uh, bipartisan bill, the infrastructure bill to go through. But the Democrat, the Democratic Party right now can't allow that to happen because if Biden loses, basically, if the Biden administration loses this, then that would be a hit not only for the midterms, but also the presidency. And you can always eat a midterm, uh, as political convention will tell you. you, you're almost assured not to keep power during a midterm in the House and Senate. But... If you also lose the presidency on top of that, that's kind of a big hit. And the Democratic Party still wants to keep leverage. Um, You know, it's a very tribalist and sort of elementary game of, you know, me versus you, my team versus your team. And so, yeah, right now, that's why they're doing something in the interest of the people, because they want to make sure after giving up all these other fights that they get this one half measure through to say, look, look, look what we did, people. Look what we did. You can't be mad at us. We did this. And the event that this fails, assuredly, the blame will be put off on the Republicans and say, see, they obstructed us. They, they obstructed us the whole time, even though there were a number of times where things could have been done that just weren't. Because ultimately the interest is not in the ideal of the it is not in the the value of the the voters ideal it's in the political cachet you can keep and gain and you know mitigate loss of you know that's what the politician thinks about that's what the political party thinks about and that's really what voters should start to kind of think about their elected officials that's how that's the lens that they should put on when they look at them you know because the more you get lost in this person really believes in certain ideals this person really believes in this that and the other as that person rises to power and prominence they they're, they're gonna bait and switch you eventually you know like aoc and how people wanted her to you know force the vote And she said, Oh, we have to save this for another fight. And then another fight to force a vote came up and, Oh, we have to save this. You know, her voting present, um, for the iron dome, $1 billion dollar on, you know, again, this was all because those political, those potential political moves meant less to the actual constituency, uh, the donor class of the democratic party that didn't mean anything to them, those other uh, agenda pieces. But those agenda pieces were very important to the people, you know, to the actual, the masses and all the actual voters. So, you know, again, it's just that. And then when it comes to the voters, those are the people that, again, they really believe in the ideals, but also the ideals that focus more on division, I'd say are less are less on their minds that, that those aren't the ones that really define the policies that you know they stand for. The things that really define their policies are the things that we a lot of people share in common because we all live in a certain kind of economy right now. We all live in a certain kind of country. Um, the policies that advocate for you know better quality of life and better financial standing for a family for individuals for you know up and coming entrepreneurs people trying to get through school people who are working currently um people going through health crises that can't qualify for certain uh medical coverage you know or people who feel in danger of losing medical coverage due to a job loss these are the job or these are the people that these are the, the problems that bind, you know, the two different voter groups together. Um, and it's also why you see a large number of independents in our country. Because truly the commonalities are so great. But you can't have one team versus another with both of them saying the same thing, you know. You can't have a Democrat and Republican if they're both trying, if they're both actively doing what the, the people's will is. Um, cause ultimately they'd be acting as if it's one party and that doesn't necessarily pull voters to act dramatically in one way or the other. You know, it's like, um, it's like, imagine a tub of water. Okay. You have to, in you're holding it in your hands. It's filled halfway. If you tip the tub one way, the water will flow to one side and leave the other side with less water on it. You tip it the other way, the water will flow to the side you have now tipped down and flow away from the side that previously had all the water in it. This is the reason for the focus on division from the messaging in American politicians. We need the water to move. We need the water to go from one side to the other so that our constituency, the donor class can be satisfied with the economic movement happening. That is American politics, right there. That is the difference between voter and politician, you know, voters, they want things to happen in their life they want to see certain policies get through that will help their life and the politicians limit that as much as possible to create a disgruntled worker and then they scapegoat to certain uh ideological differences and say that is the reason why your life is so bad so you can hate the other team and then vote for the person that's saying the things that you want to hear or that they have told you is a solution and ultimately they do that to then serve the same people politicians they set you up so they have now the lead way to serve the same couple of industries you know big pharma oil the military uh industrial complex or defense contractors <clears throat> in a different foreign interests. Ultimately, that's all who politicians really serve uh, in a broad sort of sense. So yeah, that's the difference is that old politicians play you to get you to think that they're serving you when they're really serving all these big money interests. And they need you to believe that though. They need you to believe that they're serving you or that these are the real problems these are the real issues. And so then that's why they also have a certain identity to the policies that they put through. The Republican Party has a certain identity of uh, a type of character that they want their voter to assume. Democratic Party is the kind of character that they want their voter to assume so that they can play on those character aspects to then push through the policies that you normally wouldn't agree with anyways, because they don't necessarily help or benefit your day-to-day life and they don't help your uh tangible, you know, financial or otherwise well-being. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the difference um that I wanted to point out. And the reason why I point this out is kind of something that I've been dropping in the sprinkles of dropping in sort of the uh bits and pieces of Is what does this all mean? You know, or I've been hinting at it, but I want to cap it with this question. That's a good way to frame this. Is that how should a populist view this sort of political landscape? How should a populist view this sort of, you know, game of politics that America is playing with the people? and how can you you know sort of relay a message back to the people to kind of get everyone on, on board with uh, an agenda that ultimately just looks to make life for american citizens better and so the sort of things that i, I always kind of suggest people to focus on or when they're giving messaging out uh to kind of mend this bridge, to kind of, you know, or bridge the gap, uh, is to focus on the sort of values that directly go in line with, you know, the issues of the common American person. Most Americans, you know, they're in economic straits. They're in situations where some people say they're spending too much really it's they're not making enough for the cost of living and a dignified quality of life. And I know that is a controversial statement for a lot of like establishment politicos is that to consider, you know. Something as abstract as dignity, um, in kind of devising a system for people to live, it is silly and ridiculous, and should sort of be like a non uh a non-point, you know, it, it's kind of not really a thing that should be even talked about. Cause what is dignity to want? It's so subjective, but dignity is. You know, humanity, uh, compassion, those are as subjective as they are. Those are very, you know, you see it when you see it sort of notions of, you You know, what is an undignified life for a grown adult, you know, that's working two or three jobs and is barely affording, you know, the family and, and home life that they want. Or they can't afford the family and home life they want, even though they're doing all that work. You know, even for the college graduate who has a bachelor's, you know, or some certification, um, it's still not easy for them either. And slowly, as we've seen with time, that bar for dignified life is just going up higher and higher and higher To, to meet that threshold is becoming a harder and harder task. And so, always focus on policies that look at that, and try not to stick to the narratives that are being put out, you know, or, or the partisan dogmas that are being put out um, around any sort of policy or any sort of political story that's big at the time, you know, and try to stay away from sensational stories, stories that really don't mean anything. Um, to how the average person is going to live their life, you know. Trust me, there is enough sensational stuff in DC, and that these politicians do, and there's enough character um, telling moments that they do, like the AOC tax the rich dress or um, Joe Biden, you know, being hard on drugs and then wanting everybody to just not look at his son and, and you know talk about his son ever. Um, the hypocrisy, you know, that stuff is there and there's enough of those that are pertinent to the everyday person and how it shows the hypocrisy of our government and sort of how, you know, the, it it brings up room for legitimate critique of the government. And that's sort of the stuff you should want to focus on is things that bring legitimate and critical critiques to the government, you know, things that bring up you know, uh, uh, notions of worker sovereignty, uh, as we've mentioned on here before things that mentioned, you know, growth in, in the common economy, the the common person's economy. So things that will either get you higher wages, uh, make you a better consumer, um, things that stabilize the middle class or grow the middle class. You know, policies that do all these sorts of things. Universal policies, federal mandates, these sorts of things and also the arguments for why that's so important. Federal mandates so important because once something is a federal mandate, the funding for it is a non-question because we mint our own bill. And basic Keynesian economics and modern monetary theory will tell you that a Country that mints its own bill is different than a household. You don't have to balance the books out the same way. You're looking at a a multi factored sort of, you know, a multi-factor thing of how inflation and unemployment and uh, product demand and how all these things work together will dictate your spending. Uh, Basically, the outcome and productivity of a policy will not dictate spending versus. Balancing the, the books and all that sort of things and where you're going to get the money from. That's why federal mandates or I'm sorry, that's why federal legislation or federal mandates, yeah, would uh be important. Because on the state level, you can't do that. States do have to balance out a book. But, you know, the Fed doesn't have to do that, like I said. Um, and universal programs, because... Universal programs destroy this sort of notion of the welfare state or entitlements. Um, you know, oh, we're giving handouts to all the poor and all the all the people that you know are just not working hard enough. A universal system eliminates that because everybody is getting this, and so you cannot say that. Oh, these uh, social programs are just for, you know, the most lowly of our our country, you know, it helps dispel that sort of notion. And uh, also, that's another way of, you know, giving dignity, that's a morale thing, too. Um, It's sort of more of a psychology of the politics type talk, but a lot of people are embarrassed to have to go on these programs. And so they refuse to go on them. You know, I'm I'm not going to ever take no welfare. You know, like that's a lot of people. I'm never going to be on no EBT. That's a lot of people. You know, and that's because we've shamed so many people for doing that and we've made we've depicted that kind of person that goes on these sort of social programs as, you know, lesser than cuz they're not working hard enough. You know, we don't ever say like, "Oh, our economy's terrible." You know, wages are at all-time low, so the government probably is going to give you more money than your job ever would. You know, we don't say these sort of things. Um, But also that's because that helps keep people within a certain economic uh, range and making them beholden to either the private sector tyrannies uh, like Walmart and Amazon or the public sector, you know, sort of slave mills like the military or prison. And so, as I was saying, um, that's the importance of stressing, you know, certain kind of policies in a certain way. And these are when when you say these things, what I've noticed is that it enlightens a lot of people to either warm up to these ideas more or really embrace these ideas more. Um, you know, the common person is not an idiot. They, if you give them these sorts of arguments, They're going to hear it, and even with a lot of the, you know, partisan propagandizing and all this sort of brainwashing that, you know, mainstream media and even some um, new media outlets do, you know, they, it is still very hard to argue when someone's saying, this is the problem I know you're, I know you have, and you have stated you have. And this is how these things fix it this is how this directly will affect your life and what you have been told about this like universal health care that, that's a great one everybody's so worried about oh i won't get to see the doctor i uh i want to get to see my doctor i'm gonna have to wait in these long lines i'm gonna have to do this that and the other you know i have friends out the state you know i have a canadian friends a couple european friends uh because of the beauty of the internet um and i asked them about these things cuz you know they're everyday people and they interact with these sorts of political concepts that we just talk about but like they live those things so you know how is how is the what should you call it how is the hospital how is the er how are all these things how long do you have to wait what they describe and obviously, yes, this is all anecdote, you know, so take it with a grain of salt. If you like, go find some people and ask them yourselves. They describe something extremely similar to what we deal with here. Uh, a friend of mine, I was talking to her and she said, I had to wait like an hour in the ER, um, to take like a, a PE sample or something like that. And I was like, I've heard people have to wait, you know, more than that as a minimum um, for much more serious, you know, issues, much more serious. Like this person is injured. This person, you know, broken finger, broken this that, the other, uh, torn ligaments, you know, and well, you just have to sit there. Sorry, can't do anything for you. And then, oh, you leave. Do you have insurance? Because we have to bill somebody. You know, and I ask her, how much do you have to pay? Nothing. You know, our taxes, we pay for stuff there. Incredible. Incredible. You know, and it, this is also why these sorts of anecdotes are so powerful, is because throughout history, you have heard things like this. I remember reading uh, a Du Bois book. I believe it was um, "Beyond the Veil" or something like that. And Du Bois was talking about his time in France and how he went to the—he got sick in France, went to the hospital, and he said, "In so many words, I expected the bill, and I got nothing. I, I had my treatment; I was able to leave." You know, and just thinking about Du Bois, he had a great quote where he said what in so many words, I'm paraphrasing I'm a butcher it if I try to do it verbatim. Um, when people come together, to try to get something done. That doesn't work by themselves with the help of the government, it's called socialism. Meaning this notion That people should just, oh, we should all just come together and do it ourselves. Do it ourselves. We're going to, you know, with all the, the financial and economic understanding that we all have, maybe we're experts. We common people are going to just band together and do it ourselves and show the government that we don't need you. That is one of the most foolish notions ever. In the respect of having real substantive change in the country, because everything you just did is held down by nothing. There is no anchor to the the fabric of the country that says that this is going to be like that. Even laws are flimsy, you know, when it comes to that. Like Glass Steagall was a thing, and then they repealed it, and now we have banks throwing around common people's money like, you know, it's their gambling money. Um, <clears throat> But it's a much more firm and cemented thing. You now, once laws are there, it's hard to be the person to take that away. You know, that's why they can't get rid of Social Security like they want to. That's why they can't get rid of welfare and all these other social programs, because we've already had it for so long. And you don't want to be the politician and take it away because you'll never it's political suicide, you know, and there's not enough money in the world that would get you to throw away your career basically at the start of it. Nothing in the world. And so, again, as a populist, the way I say come at all these, you know, the the double speak the partisan, you know, sort of dogmas that they've been programming into people with media is Focus your rhetoric on the things that they're not about to focus on in mainstream media. Focus it on the unifying factors and actively go to eliminate this idea of, you know, it's you versus them. You know, it's not Democrat versus Republican. It's top and bottom. It's, it's This is a class issue, you know. Re, redraw the lines uh, in your in your rhetoric to throw away their framing, to throw away the establishment legacy media framing and really give the the more realistic, you know, the corporate, you know, the corporatists, uh, people who believe in corporate socialism, you know, a number of your elected officials in the House and Senate, and basically every president since, you know, Nixon, um, this is who they serve. And so, you, we as the people have to unify it and take back the reins. And part of that, it, it is, you know, it, it doesn't all look like one thing. Part of that is, yeah, people need to come together and start pushing through and getting policies on ballots. Part of that, too, is people need to you know, we need to find people who, who will run, you know, and we need to be much more hawkish on our politicians. You know, we need to be like the French are and, you know, be very uh, hostile in in messaging and rhetoric when it comes to our politicians and how, you know, anytime they, they breathe wrong, they should be afraid that they're going to lose all the political cachet they have and all the, the effort that they have worked for in their political career is literally at the whim of the people, you know? And ultimately too, this is just a personal thing. I think we should push for more direct democracy. Now we are in a time where we have the technology, we have the ability like never before to truly, you know, guide our government in our own hands, um, we have the ability to do that. And it's enough educated people, you know, to make competent decisions. You know, not saying that, not trying to uh, be one of these people that says only the nobles and only the educated minds can guide society, but that's a common critique of democracy. That, oh, you're going to let some country bumpkin, some townie, some, you know, low level education person to make decisions for our government, you know, that movie, uh, idiocracy that that's the counter to democracy. But the idea is that even the, the average dumbest quote unquote around us has enough sense to say, well, I, I mean, I know. You know, it's not—it's not right that people shouldn't have a fair shot at things. Even they can be persuaded by, you know, a good speaker to vote in a certain kind of way. And it's—you know—the onus is on the people at that point then to make sure you have good arguments and really be able to hash these arguments out um, against other ideals and other, you know, ideologies and see different and creative ways to implement these sort of things to help, you know, the whole country and community or your town or your state. You know, this is how I'd focus the messaging for uh, for people who aren't, who are still caught in the, the sort of American politics sort of frame and setup. And so with that, I think I'm coming back to the original question that I posed at, you know, the sort of start of this whole conversation. American politics. What is it? What the hell is it? Coming or going, where are we at? Ultimately, my, well, my view of American politics is, in so many words, would be it's It's pro wrestling with high stakes. It's Kabuki theater with people's lives on the line. Okay. And what I mean by this is that it's a lot of elected officials who are ultimately people who want power, have been promised some sort of power, have power and a private sector that looks to secure their position and their power. And they have allied through money and, you know, other future promises of employment. Um, this along with any other foreign countries, which typically goes along with, you know, war and, uh, all these defense contract, um, companies like Boeing and Raytheon and, uh, spacex even a lot of it, they have formed a a access of power you know they, they have formed a, a unit in which basically they're able to manipulate the country you know uh all those that i just mentioned and media you know legacy media mainstream media because they're the way that they speak these messages so that people can follow along and be disgruntled and have, you know, arguments amongst themselves while they're able to do these things. You know, American politics is Barnum and Bailey. It's, you know, the Ringling brothers, you know, it's circus, one big act so that the rich can ultimately just control the economy. And effectively have it to where they're not threatened or they mitigate the threat to them that you know could be posed and so the american government can turn a certain amount of money for itself as well and stay a superpower and stay economically and militarily uh, uh very far ahead of every other country around it um and they have done this now because of all these different interests in the face of the actual, you know, well-being of the people of the country. So if I'm an individual of this country, uh, to say it's a, a happy picture for you to say, it's a very optimistic, you know, sort of projection would be a lie, but I am also still a very optimistic person. And the truth is, is that. It literally only takes organization on the half of the, on behalf of the people to effectively target and break up this power structure. Um, to at least get the things to secure the people and make you know merit the center and the heart of what the American citizens want. And, to reduce the sort of tribalism that would ultimately destroy the country for us. It doesn't take, you know, in saying that I was going to say, it doesn't take a whole lot, but that is a very big ask is to get people to unify, especially now when it seems like we are the most divisive, probably we've been in a while, but the people unified are a power greater than this house of cards that they've built, you know? Cause the second you get enough organized people, the control, the stranglehold they have topples, you know, either it topples and, you know, uh, hail a gunfire because they've now deployed national guards on people and, you know, military uh, police or something like that to try to quell the rioting, you know, disgruntled commoners. Or it's a very combative political climate in which the people just have to fight, uh, not physically, they have to fight, you know, these different battles, I guess, of over policy and over uh, just different political issues and during different administrations with different politicians So, you know, that that's kind of where I think we're at. It, it's going to be a battle of some sort. And I always hope that it's a peaceful one because, you know, war sucks. I'm not a big war guy. But, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the message I guess I'm going to leave this off on. Kind of a, a, a an off note to end on, I suppose. But, you know, that's. American politics, too. It's not always a clean break. Um, Other than that, I guess that's it for this episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. Um, Any questions, comments, feedback, any sort of thing you want to say, you guys know the Gmail by now. uh, Mail at Uh, gmail.com. As always, it's in the description. It's on my Instagram the black underscore Ronin. Uh any other things I want to plug right now? I think that's about it for now. Uh you guys know where to find me on all the places where you find your podcast, all that sort of thing. And thank you for this, you know, listening again to this very turbulent episode. I hope you guys got something good out of it. And other than that, I will catch you in the next one. Deuces.